Father, we are, uh, we are a people that are blessed by you. Um, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, the, the, the peace, the comfort, the assurance that comes in knowing that is indescribable at times. We live in a world that's in constant turmoil, upheaval, um, and it seems as if there is nowhere that we can go to find a refuge, to find a shelter, to find a place to be able to make sense out of life, to be able to think upon, meditate upon your promises. Um, but you, Lord, yourself, you are that refuge. All your promises are yes in Christ for us. And because of that, we have the privilege, just the joy of gathering together here today to worship you, to proclaim your excellencies. So be magnified, Lord, we pray. That is our desire, to, for you to be made much of, for the truth and the power of your word to go forth and for us to see, to, uh, to, to once again today have another taste of your faithfulness, your, your hand accomplishing your purposes um, done and displayed for us. So Lord, we ask and pray that you would do that today for your glory and for our good, for our encouragement, for our sanctification. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I love the passage that, um, that Derek read for us this morning at Hebrews chapter 6. And today, this, today we get an opportunity again to be reminded of the faithfulness of God to his word. I said last week that the theme running through Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the issue of God's faithfulness to his word. I cannot imagine a, a more awful thing than not, be, not being sure, not knowing whether or not God is going to be faithful and, and whether or not his word is trustworthy. Because if those two things are in jeopardy, if those two things are still like up in the air for knowing whether it's true or not, then really what, are we, what do we do when we gather together and we hear the word of God? Why is the word of God central to everything that we do as Christians? Why is the word of God central to everything that we do um, as a church? And it comes down to this basic fact. I believe with my whole heart, all of my being, that the word of God is true. And I believe with my heart that God will be faithful to his word. Now, how I understand that word, how I want him to accomplish his word, how he will accomplish his word, now those things may not work out the way that I think that they're going to work out or would want them to work out. But that is never an issue of God's, that's never a question of God's faithfulness and it's never a question of God's word. It's always a question of, am I willing to, again, bring my life and my interpretation of what I, I think the word says um, into consideration of what it is that God is actually doing in my life? 
He is giving, he, has he not given us very precious and wonderful and great promises in his word? Do you believe that he is faithful? He will accomplish his word in your life. The question is, is what happens when he begins to accomplish that in your life and it's not in a way that you foresaw or would prefer for him to do? Who's the one that needs to, to, to alter what they're doing? The Lord or you and I? Right, see, everything, it's on this side of the table. Um, we're going to be singing a song after uh, the sermon, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And this is a confession of we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, oh, I want to grow. I want to be like Christ. And he begins to do that in a way that you probably don't like in the moment. And it's a constant yielding to the truth of God's word and, and what it is that he is accomplishing and doing in our lives. So we see in Romans 9, verses Four through, um, I know that it says four through eight. We're probably only going to get through seven. But as we see what it is that God is doing, we see Paul has this, this conclusion that he comes to that the word of God, as he knew it and understood it, is coming to fruition and God is being faithful. It's just not the way that he had understood it before or thought about how it was going to come about before, especially as he read the word and understood the law of God as one who was unregenerate. I mean, once he is saved and the spirit of God indwells within, well, now you have, you have the divine interpreter dwelling within you as you come to the scripture to open up your eyes to see things as they truly are, to see things the way that God originally intended for them to be read and to be understood. We see that God's covenant promises are being applied to Gentiles as they are coming in to as they are coming to the Messiah and receiving salvation. And the question is, because this is happening, is God being unfaithful to his word? Something, something unforeseen, something unexpected is, is being accomplished. And so the question is, is God being unfaithful? Did he change his mind? Did he have to shift gears? Did he alter his plan? Did something come up? And he's like, whoa, okay, I need to kind of, I need to see what's going on here and work with this and, and, and go off in a different direction. Well, the answer to that we see is a resounding no in our text today. No, God's not being unfaithful to his word. He's, being, he's doing what he said he would do all along. The question is, have we had eyes to see have we had ears to hear what it is that he said he was going to be doing? Oh, is God being faithful? Indeed, he is being faithful. God's word succeeds. And so there's, a, there's this cross-section that we face today regarding the success of God's word and his faithfulness that is worth us um, looking at today. Now let me say this. There are obviously, and I said this last week, there are things in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that are not universally agreed upon. And there are people that have different perspectives and different opinions and different interpretations of what the text says. And, and this is what I believe to be at the core of the, these disagreements. I believe that every, for the most part, 
people are trying to read the Bible faithfully. People are trying to interpret the Bible faithfully. So when we have a doctrinal disagreement, you've got to understand that someone is speaking from a position of, this is, this is what I believe the Bible says. Now, if you can give a, a, a Berean reasoned argument for like, look, this is, this is what I believe the Bible says, and this is why, and you go through it, then there's credence there. But you have to be able to give a biblical reasoning for why you believe the Scripture says what it says. You have two people trying to be faithful to the Word of God, trying to interpret the Bible faithfully, trying to apply the Bible faithfully, trying to live the Bible out faithfully, and yet we have disagreements. And so I think the appropriate response when that happens is a James 3 type of wisdom. Wisdom is pure. It's peaceable. It's open to reason. It's full of good fruits and mercy. And so we need to understand that as we come together and we talk about these things, you're probably engaging in a conversation with someone who's saying, look, man, I'm trying to be faithful to the Bible just like you are. And that should create an atmosphere of, of understanding and patience with one another as we, as we dive into some of these things. And there are some difficult truths for us to, to work through. But um, we're going to see today the success of God's Word. And as I said before, what we're going to be getting into as we get into Romans 9 is the doctrine of election is the vehicle by which we understand God being faithful to accomplish his covenant promises. God has given covenant promises all throughout, primarily in the Old Testament. The New Testament is the accomplishing, the carrying out of many of those covenant promises. And, the, and, and who are those covenant promises being fulfilled in? Those whom God has elected before the foundation of the world. Election is the doctrine that helps us understand how God is being faithful to his word. And I think that's helpful for us to see as we get into these sections. So let's read uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 7 today. Some of this is going to be, um, these verses 4 and 5 are going to be what we read last week. And then we want to look into those a little bit more and then discuss and bring verse 6 and 7 into the picture as well. So Romans 9, beginning in verse 4, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And verse 7 is really going to, we're going to spend more time talking about that next week as it ties into 8, 9, 10, and 11, Lord willing. But I want to include it today for our consideration because we see where he, he kind of like takes his argument back to as the Word of God is being unfolded and fulfilled, and he introduces this idea in verse 7 of there being two Israels, he's going to go all the way back to, hey, this is nothing new. You find this in the patriarch Abraham. 
And so it gives us the permission, really, the, the encouragement to go back to even Abraham and read through the Abraham story through the lens of what we're reading in Romans 9 of going, what is God doing here? As we know that um, Scripture interprets Scripture, and especially latter Scriptures help us understand and clarify Scriptures that came, that came earlier. This is what Paul is, is doing for us. We see this put on display um, in Romans 9. So last week we saw um, his heart being in anguish, verses 1 through 3, because he's taken into consideration the fact that all of these things that we see in verses 4 and 5 were given to the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. But his heart is in anguish because he sees that not all these covenant promises are actually coming to fruition just among the Jews. They're coming to fruition among the Gentiles as well. And his heart is in anguish because many of his own countrymen, his Jews, they're the ones who are responsible for crucifying the Messiah. And they're the ones that are most opposed to the gospel message, which is the magnification of the work of the Messiah. So his heart is in anguish. My own men, like, and I can picture him seeing himself in that same camp because indeed he once was. I was trying to destroy the work of God, the Messiah, in the preaching of the gospel, in the salvation of the sinner. And now he sees things completely different because he's on the other side of redemption. And his heart is in anguish of how his people are continuing to reject God's message of salvation through the Messiah. And now we, we see specifically him mentioning some of the context, or excuse me, some of the contents of what it is that God had given to his people and how it relates to God's faithfulness to carry those things out. So we see first, our first point that we want to look at this morning, how God's word succeeds in its declaration. God's word succeeds in its declaration. God had announced all of these things throughout the Old Testament. And the, the, the list of them in verses 4 and 5, they are the Israelites. He's talking about his, his fellow countrymen. He's talking about national Israel. Paul has a very clear understanding of the history of his people. And he's recounting biblically. Biblically. He's not, he didn't go to some secular textbook that he was taught in, you know, Jewish school as a little boy. He's going back to the scriptures. The scriptures are his, his rule of faith, his authority. And he's going like, look, this is what I see in the Scripture. And this is like, the, this is the question, right? I mean, this is the most important question I think that we can consider is, number one, what is your source of authority? Is it the Scripture in and of itself? And, and how do you understand the Scripture? God was absolutely successful in proclaiming the truth of his word and it being preserved in the scripture. This is what Paul is like banking on. He's, he's, he's trusting in this. And he goes through a, a very thorough list of what it is that God gave the Israelites. They are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption. He sees 
his nation as being adopted by God. I mean, there's the passage that probably communicates this the most clearly is Exodus 4.22. Exodus 4.22 says this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Adoption includes with it the idea of sonship, being brought into the family of God. He goes on from there and he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory. What glory is he talking about? To them belong the glory of God. I mean, he can recount and think back upon the Old Testament and how the glory of God descended upon these people in numerous places. You think about the glory of God descending down upon them at Mount Sinai in giving of the law. And the mountain was, the mountain was surrounded by a great cloud. You're going to see this cloud imagery and wording used throughout the Scripture regarding, as it describes the presence of God's glory. It's used at Mount Sinai. It's used at the end of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, verses 33 and 34. And as they're finishing erecting the tabernacle, which is the place of worship, says this, And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud, the cloud, this is not like, you know, hey, a cloud. This is the glory cloud. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Very similar language is used in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. As they finish the construction of the temple. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, the giving of the law, the construction of the tabernacle, the construction of the temple, all of them having the glory cloud descend. God's presence among his people. This is what he's talking about in Romans 9 where he's like, he gave them the glory. He himself descended and was present among them at these very specific and unique times as well, signifying his presence with his people. Not only that, not only the adoption and the glory, but he gave them the covenants. The covenants given to Abraham, the covenant given to Moses, the covenant given to David, all of them having their special significance as they, as they play a prominent role in the story of redemption. God gives a covenant to Abraham that he's going to bless him, give him a land, give him a seed from which the nation of Israel will grow. God makes a covenant with Moses and the instructions on how to live as a, as a faithful Israelite. 
and gives, makes a covenant with David, reminding him that an Israelite king will sit upon his throne for how long? Forever. And so what happens is you see kings come and go, come and go. There's this, there's this expectation of there's one who will come and stay. There will be no going. He knows that these covenant promises are given to the nation of Israel. The giving of the law. God declares for his people how they should live as an extension of his own character. The law of God reveals his own character and what he demands. Perfection is what he requires. And he gives to them the, the law. No other nation of the world had had this divine revelation of what pleases God like the nation of Israel had. He let all the other nations go their way while he plucked, elected this nation out to give them his divinely revealed instruction and law, not just on how they should live, but on how they should worship, which is the next thing that he mentions. The giving of the law, the worship. How is a faithful Israelite to approach God? How is one to rightly worship God? Now this is, this is of utmost concern, especially today for us as believers, or at least it should be. How is God to be approached? What is, is there a appropriate way? And are there authoritatively in appropriate ways? And I would say absolutely yes. There is a way of which God must be worshiped, can be worshiped, and there's no other way by which he can be worshiped and approached. He gave to the nation of Israel at that time what he had revealed to them regarding how he is to be approached and worshiped, and much of it was bound up within the sacrificial system. You had to be clean. You had to offer the appropriate sacrifice for your worship to be pleasing to him. And he goes on from there, the promises. The promises of redemption, salvation. The promises of a redeemer, a Messiah to come. And we know this goes back further than Abraham, certainly. This is right back at the heart of Genesis 3.15. Oh, there's going to come one. And Adam and Eve bear two sons. Is this one of these two boys going to be the one? Well, one kills the other, and then the other one's banished away. Well, it's not these two. And from there forward, mankind is looking. Who is this man that's going to come and redeem us and to undo the curse? And promises were given at the beginning and they continue to unfold and they take unique shape and form as they're unfolded and further revelation is given within the context of his interaction with the nation of Israel. They've been given very great and precious promises. And the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, Abra the, 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 the patriarchs come from them. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Abraham being really the cornerstone, the chief of the patriarchs. Abraham, if you read Genesis chapter 12, pagan, total pagan, idol worshiper. And God, what does God do? He sovereignly calls him and elects him and says, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. And as you read the Abraham story, you see the faithfulness of God to bring it to fruition. And you see those promises, those covenant promises given to Isaac, given to Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. And from him come the 12 tribes. And the promises in many ways are distributed then through them and to them. And then the last one that he mentions is by the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. God himself, by his own free choice and volition, chooses to come wrapped in the flesh of a first century Jewish man. And Paul sees and he knows what it is that's taken place. He also knows that this is not merely any Jewish man, but he is God first. Before he came in the flesh, he is God over all, who is blessed forever. And then what does he put at the end of verse 5? Amen. Amen. May it be so. It is like the, the, the period of all periods and exclamation marks. The one that came to bring salvation, the one that all of these things were pointing toward is that man, Jesus Christ, and he is God. He is over all. And, and that takes precedence over the form that he comes in. For he existed prior to the creation of anything, of any, of any nation, of any earth, of water, of sky, of, of any of it, right? This is what we're learning in Hebrews. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. When you look at Christ, you may see with, with you know, they may have seen a Jewish man. And many saw him in that way, but they did not truly see him. For who he truly was, was, was veiled, invisible to them. We see him by eyes of faith, who he is. He is God over all. And so the question then becomes, what does God do concerning his word when he comes? If the question that we're considering is a question of God being faithful to his word, his promise, all these things, which is, right, this is how he, he sums it up in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. He takes all of those contents, all of those things of verses 4 and 5, and he condenses them and packs them into this phrase, 
the Word of God. He, he has nothing less in mind than the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture. Rather than saying it's not, um, but it is not as though the adoption has failed, the glory has failed, the covenants have failed, the giving of the law has failed, the worship has failed, and the promises have failed. It's not as if the patriarchs has failed. He could say all that, he could repeat it all that, but he just shorthands it and says it's not as if the Word of God has failed. In his mind, this is an issue of God's faithfulness to his word. And as I said earlier, I cannot imagine a, a, a more awful thing than not knowing whether or not God was going to be faithful to his word and if his word and he himself was trustworthy and reliable. You take that away from me and you've taken everything away. I mean, we stand upon the word of God. That's what each and every, I pray, that's what I want, that's what I'm trying to do. And I, I pray that's what you're trying to do. That's what we're all trying to do as we gather together. We're like, we're looking at the scripture together. And we want God, we want, we, we see the Bible's authoritative, sufficient, infallible, all of those things. And we see God himself fulfilling it all being completely trustworthy and reliable to carry it all out. So the question is, what, is, what does God do with his word when he comes? You ever thought about that? As you're reading through the Gospels, you, we believe Jesus is God, right? What is God doing with his word as he comes? And he unfolds it. We have pictures of this, right? Luke chapter 4 sits down, opens a scroll, part of the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, reads it, simply rolls it up, hands it back. Today in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. What? We know you. In his own hometown. What does God do? And, and, and seeing how Jesus understands and how Jesus interprets and how Jesus teaches and fulfills the Old Testament is of paramount importance because it sets a precedent moving forward for how the rest of the New Testament writers understand and interpret the Scriptures and how we in turn should understand and interpret the Scriptures. So God has been, uh, God's Word succeeds in its declaration. Secondly, God's Word succeeds in its fulfillment. These are only two points today. It succeeds in its declaration. Paul has go just gone through what it is that God has declared. And then his, his statement in verse 6 implies the question, is God being faithful? But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he looks around and he sees Gentiles coming in and become re becoming recipients of all of these things. What's God doing? Well, it's certainly not failure. It's success. He's accomplishing that which he set out to accomplish. If all these things in verses 4 and 5 were given to Israel, then why aren't they all being fulfilled for Israel? Why aren't they all coming in? They've been giving all these things. They've been given the promises. Why don't they believe the promises? They've been given the patriarchs. Why don't they have faith like the patriarchs? 
They've been given the adoption. Why aren't they adopted? And his, and his answer, I think, is very telling. It's not an issue of God being faithful. It's not an issue of God being able. It's not an issue of God changing his mind. The answer that he gives is for or because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What's the reason why the national Israelites are not receiving all these things? Because there's another Israel. See, in his mind, what we have to see in verse 6 is that there, he then introduces this concept, which I would say has always existed. But he introduces this concept that there are indeed two Israels. He clearly defines and says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. All those things have not failed. Why haven't they failed? Because not, who are, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's another Israel that people belong to, of which physical descent and nationality is completely obsolete. I mean, this has been the argument that Paul has been battling the whole time, right? The Jews are saying, we're God's people. We're good. What's this whole idea of faith alone and coming to Christ? We've been given all these things. Paul's like, no, you've descended from Israel, but you don't belong to the true Israel. Because how, how does, who is and what is the true Israel? He begins to make this clear distinction, and this is where the doctrine of election begins to engulf who the true Israel is. The true Israelites are those who have been elected before the foundation of the world. They are the ones that are actually receiving all of these promises. His conclusion is that this is, um, as he goes on to verse 7, not all who belong, descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he, entered, he goes back to Abraham, and he sees a promise given that those who are, belong to true Israel are children of the promise given to Abraham, not of physical descent, not of his own, his own doing, his own effort, his own work. This is just has complete agreement with what it is that he said earlier in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Who's the Jew? one who's had a heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. Who's the true Israelite? The one whose heart has been circumcised by the Spirit of God. The, the receiver of the promise given to Abraham. That's what he says. He goes all the way back. It's not as if like, 
you know, a Jew reading this may go, what? When did, like, when did this become a thing? And Paul's argument is, let me go back to Abraham. It, ha- it has its roots there for us as a people group. The true offspring of Abraham are the people of faith. I mean, this was Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, he goes through and he talks about how Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. This is an argument against the Jews. You have to be justified by faith if you want to be a true descendant of Abraham. Verses eight, Romans 4, 11 and 12. He received the sign of circumcision and as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See, he's the father of all those who have faith. The the Jews at this point may be going, oh, so what are you saying, Paul, that we're like, we're totally anathematized, there's no hope? And, And Paul will go on in Romans 9, 10, 11, no. It's not as if there's no hope for you. It's just your hope stand upon the sovereign purposes of God's election like everybody else. Those who come in and who are part of the true Israel are done, have that for them because they have been elected before the foundation of the world. See, the issue is then a connection with God's word and his ability to identify a true Israelite to create a true Israelite through his word. It makes it a matter of understanding and interpreting the word of God. I think Paul would say that he previously had misinterpreted and misunderstood the promises of God's word through the lens of his own nationality. And now coming to faith in Christ he sees everything differently. And he goes back and he reinterprets what it is that he had previously known, thought through how he had previously thought those things were going to work out, and he sees all of them differently because he sees what's being accomplished. He sees who's actually being saved. And he sees all of these things being given to them. I want to look, I mean, just think with me for a moment. All of the things that he listed in verses 4 and 5, do we realize that there is a New Testament counterpart to all of them which are fulfilled in Christ? Paul has this lens by which he is viewing the adoption, the glory, the covenants through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ and having all of them find their fulfillment in him and thus fulfilled for all of those who are you in Christ have union with Christ. You think about the go through these, and and I'm going to give you some verses. You can write them down. I'm not going to hit on each one of them with equal weight. I just want us to to, to look at them and to know them. The adoption. I mean, this should be an easy one because we just read about this early in Romans chapter eight. Who are the adopted people? 
Those who were adopted are those who are in Christ and have the Spirit of Christ. 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's, he's, steal, he's stealing the language of the Old Testament, and he's applying it to the New Testament believer. You're by the Spirit. You're the adopted. If you are in Christ. How about the glory? Where's the glory of God most clearly seen and revealed? If you remember those passages that I read about the glory of God, what accompanied the, the glory of God? The cloud. What was present on Matthew 17 in the mountain of transfiguration? The cloud envelops them. And Jesus' divine nature is revealed and a voice speaks from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Or you have 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where's the glory of God most clearly seen and revealed and fulfilled? In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How about the covenants? Uh, I, last week, Christian read for our scripture reading Ezekiel 37, 24 through 26. And it's, what's interesting here is we see Ezekiel saying these things regarding the various covenants. My servant David, this is Ezekiel 37, 24 through 26. My servant David shall be king over them, the Davidic covenant. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes, the Mosaic covenant. And they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob the Abrahamic covenant, where your fathers lived. And their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace. What covenant is that? The new. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And he goes on. You see how Ezekiel takes the Davidic, the Mosaic, the Abrahamic, and he streams them all into the fulfilling of this covenant that's to come where there's everlasting peace under the rule of the Davidic king forever. Even the covenants have their fulfillment in Christ. The giving of the law. This is an easy one. Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Finds its fulfillment in Christ. The worship. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29, talk about the worship. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is about Christ being the fulfillment of all that had come, especially the sacrificial system. And 
he says in Romans, or excuse me, in Hebrews 12, 28, because of this, let us offer to God acceptable worship. How does one offer acceptable worship to God? Through Christ. Is there any other way to come to him, to worship him, to adore him? The promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises. Promises found where? What promises? Promises found in the Old Testament. Where do the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment? In Christ. That is why in Christ we utter our amen for the glory of God. If you want God to be glorified, you see Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises given in the Old Testament. The patriarchs. And again, Abraham being the chief cornerstone of this, I think of John 8, that whole conversation that Jesus has with the Jews in John chapter 8. They're claiming Abraham as their father. He's our patriarch. What does Jesus say? Hmm, no. Oh, well, but God, he's our father. Hmm, no. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews. What is he, who does he say their father is? 839. Your father's the devil. Do you want to know who your patriarch is? Satan's your patriarch. Because they reject him as being God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the patriarchs. Everything finds their fulfillment in him. For, I, I like the way that 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 put it. And I think this is a good summary of how we are to see ourselves and how the New Testament sees and interprets the Old Testament being for us, being for those who are in Christ. And think of the imagery and the wording that's being used in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you now have received mercy. This is very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You were, you were far off without hope and without God in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 11 and all the way through verse 22. But he, he does this thing where he centralizes the hope of the Gentile and the believing Jew in one place in the person of Christ. And he says, the dividing wall of hostility broken down. What stood, what, what divided Jew and Gentile for centuries past has now been broken down. And there's one hope. 
Ephesians 2.17, He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, fellow citizens with the saints and members of, God, of the household of God. And goes on from there, talking about the, the, the structure of which God has built. The apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ, him being the chief cornerstone. Salvation is found in one place. It's found in Christ. And it's being fulfilled in him. God is not being unfaithful to his word. He's being faithful and he's unfolding it as he said he would. And there's a great deal of comfort for us to take in all of this in a practical way. You think of the fact that all of God's promises to us are yes in Christ. And yet, aren't we still waiting? I know I'm waiting for at least one, his return. I think of the fact, I mean, get, just this, these examples Abraham was given a promise. Did it happen like this? How long did he, he waited? Years and years and years. Did God fulfill his promise? Yes, he did. You think of David, pronounced king. Did it happen immediately? No. He was on the run for his life for years and years and years. Did God fulfill his word, his promise? Absolutely. The, lo the Lord is not slow, slack, to fulfill his promises. I think of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. You have to have firmly fixed in your mind, every word of God proves true. He has declared it. It, his word succeeds in its declaration. His, his word succeeds in its fulfillment and its accomplishment. But here's the thing. In his timing, as he sees fit to do it. And I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters. God is never late. We may think he's late. Beloved, he's not. He knows exactly what is needed, and when is needed. So, so when you're looking at the circumstances of life and you're like, I don't like this. Why is this happening? Is this part of God's plan? The answer is yes, it is part of his plan. It is serving his divine purposes in your life. And he'll bring it to an end if he chooses to bring it to an end in his divine timing for his glory, and for your good. And, and the encouragement for us is to wait. Hold on. Um, I'm going to close this with this passage before we go into our communion time. It's an extension of what I just read in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. And he makes this transition then to how it is we should live. Right, so 
but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies. That's one. In verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Abstain. As a sojourner in exile, get that, get that word picture seared into your mind, seared into your heart. This world is not my home. I'm passing through. I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. I am a, a pilgrim making my way through this world. And as I do so, I am called to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against my soul. There is a battle that is being fought on the turf of our souls by which we are called to partake and not be slothful or blind or lazy or ignorant, for we are beloved children of God, and He is coming back for His own. And so we wait and we hold fast to Him. This is the time in our service where we're going to partake of communion together. The communion time is for pilgrims for exiles. And this time is also, because it's for pilgrims and exiles, it's a time of strengthening. It's a time of encouragement. It's a time of being built up. If you feel weary, if you feel discouraged, if you feel sad, if angry, upset, frustrated, you know, whatever word you want to use, it's all the same stuff. Time to come to the table. Come to him and receive. Receive, once again, freshly, his all-sufficient kindness and mercy and grace as you're reminded of what it is that he's done for you as he languished away upon that cross for your sins. Died and rose again and is now seated above all things in the heavens, orchestrating and ordaining and working through all things for his glory and for your good. This is a time to receive. It's a time to worship. It's a time to confess, Lord, I have not believed in your promises. But I, I, I do fall back on that one promise. There's no condemnation for me being in Christ. And you appropriate that forgiveness and you be strengthened by it and encouraged by it today, I pray. So the elements are on the tables. If you're a believer in Christ, know him by faith alone, feel free to partake of that with us if you're visiting today. If you don't know Christ by faith alone, just let the elements be. But think about your standing before God and if you're relying upon anything of your own or you know him by faith alone. So the elements are on the table. You can get those or turn back to your seat for a time of prayer and meditation. We'll partake of them together shortly.